0: I just want to pray for us as we begin that God will in us. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to fill this place as your word is read and as I seek to do my best, to do honor to your text. I pray that you would open our hearts, open our hearts to receive the truth that you inspired. And I pray, God, that our lives would change as a result of this text and that today we would be more unified at the end of this sermon. Amen. In college, I went to Westchester University. Anybody else here went there? Go Rams. Go Rams. Woo! Woo! Um, and on Tuesday nights, we used to do something a little bit unusual. We used to go out on campus and share the gospel with anybody that we met. It was very nerve wracking, and a lot of times people would say, Oh, I'll come Tuesday, and they wouldn't show up, you know, because it was a pretty intense thing. And a lot of times we go out and we wouldn't even find anybody. There, people would like hide, I guess, when we came. Uh, or if we got into conversation, sometimes they'd fake the old phone call and then just get out. But every once in a while, you'd have a good you know, conversation, one that really stuck with you, and one of those nights was just like that. There were three guys sitting outside their dorm room having a smoke break, and I walked up to them, and after a few minutes, I realized they were part of a philosophical group called the Skeptics. And I was intimidated. I was like, oh, man, what did I get myself into? Um, and let me just tell you, I didn't really say anything that, that was meaningful, so I'm, probably, I'm sure they've probably forgotten me at this point. But what one of them said to me has stuck with me to this day. Here's what he said. Dude, I dig your Jesus. He was an awesome guy, but I don't like your church. And that statement struck me to the heart because it it unveiled the apparent contradiction that many of us see—that often the church, the bride of Christ, is not a good representative of our God. Mm -hmm. The rivalry, the schisms, the power plays—all of that is not what God calls us to be like. So, so what do we do? Do we give up on the unity of the church? Do we give up on at least a church that is unified? Well, let's see what Ephesians 4 has to say. Starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And in spite of our current contemporary culture that often is not a good representative of God, this text tells us that because we're unified by God, Mm -hmm. we must earnestly, Seek to maintain the unity that we've been given. So unified by God, we earnestly seek to maintain the unity that we've been given. And to help us organize our thoughts this morning as we look at the unity of the church, I'm going to look at three different aspects of it. The source of our unity, the character of our unity, and the great comfort of our unity. So first, let's look at the source of our unity. And as we begin to examine these verses, we're going to do something a bit counterintuitive We're going to start with the end of the passage, verses 4 and 6. And the reason I'm doing that is because it gives us the grounding for what comes before it. It's it's sort of the the reason why he calls us to maintain the unity. So let's look at verses 4 through 6, the source of our unity. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism... One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So why are we to continue pursuing unity even though there are so many discouraging examples around us? Unified by God, we earnestly seek to maintain unity. This passage tells us that God wants us to be unified Mm -hmm. because he's Trinity and he's unity. He is three in one. Mm -hmm. The church is to be unified because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are unified in one God. Now each member in this passage is not only unified in their essence, we hear the, the Father called the one God, we hear the Jesus called the one Lord, and we see the Spirit called the one Spirit. They're also unified in the roles that they take on in creating the unity of the church. In verse 6, the Father is the source of our unity. Look, it says, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In all, all things come from Him. In verse 5, the Son is the object of our unity. He is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He is the object of our unity. And the one who brings about the unity in the church is the one Spirit, the creator of the body of Christ. Every single person that comes to faith in God experiences encounters the same Trinitarian God. They experience the blueprint of the Father that was put in place before the foundations of the earth. They experience the salvific plan played out in Jesus' life as He dies on the cross for their sins. And they experience the Spirit who opens their eyes to see the depths of their sin, who shows them that He's given them power for good works. No matter how far gone we were before conversion, we all have a unifying hope in this Trinitarian God. So has the mission of God's church failed? Is unity no longer a part of this plan? Did the Father's blueprint get thrown out at some point? So we just become individualized churches in ourselves. This is kind of a popular thing right now. People are just having Bible studies at their houses and kind of giving up on the church because they've been burned. No. Our all-powerful, almighty God is tenacious about his plan. God the Spirit is one. God the Son is one Lord. And all, the one God is our Father. Because we've been unified in Christ, in this trying God, we can pursue unity today. Now, don't get me wrong, there is disunity. I'm not denying that. It's it's present in our churches, even in sovereign race churches. It's in our relationships, even in our relationships, in our families. And it's it's present in our hearts, right? There are times when we come up on Sundays and we just feel I'm not on the same page. The moment that sin entered the world through the temptation, the fabric of the church was torn apart. And what we see today is the effects of the fall. It's a tragic loss of unity. But despite this reality of sin, God's plan remains for his church to be united. And the source of our unity is uncompromised. We can still have hope because God is still one. But now the, the text before this has said we have to do some stuff. So let's take a look now at verses 1 through 3 at our second point. What's the character of unity? What are we supposed to act like as we maintain this unity? Verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And in this call, he brings to the surface four salient character qualities that we need to have. You see it in humility and gentleness and patience and in forbearance. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at those. The way Paul phrases this sentence underscores the fact that these are things we have to pursue. They don't just happen in our lives. Mm-hmm. It's possible for Christians in churches to fight God's plan. Mm-hmm. There are some churches that are fighting the Spirit, unifying activity. Some Christians refuse to join churches, and some, sadly, wherever they join, wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. It's true, right? It happens. Some of us have been there. Though the source of our unity is unshakable, this unity is still present. Mm-hmm. So there's a tension in these verses we're picking up. Like you say, God's objectively unified, and we're not somehow. Well, because we're objectively unified, we are unified in this sense. It's a fact that we all share with Christ. And I, I remember experiencing this really in a noticeable way a few years ago. I traveled down to Tom's River, New Jersey, and led worship for our sister church down there. And I was looking out on the congregation right before I led worship. It's always a little bit of a nerve wracking. Uh, and I, saw, I thought to myself, I don't know any of these people. I wonder what they're thinking right now. And I looked at them; and they had Giants jerseys on. I was like, I don't even like these people. <laughs> <laughs> so I have like a big like love point. And then I remember, you know, thinking to myself, but I know, I know the most important thing about them, and that that they love Jesus, and that they're united to Jesus. Amen. And you know what? As we began to sing, there was this tangible love. Yeah. As I was saying, they were calling back, and there was I was talking; they were talking back, and it was. This beautiful picture. We don't know anything about each other except the most important thing. And that is that we are unified objectively. We can't change it. It's unshakable. It's true today, this morning, of all of you, regardless of how you feel right now. You are unified if you believe in Jesus for salvation. So, we are objectively unified. But in verse 1, Paul urges us to maintain the unity. (coughs) Mm -hmm. He uses the words urge and eager. To underscore how important this calling is We have to earnestly maintain it We aren't just going to be unified If God forces us together It's not like I lost my job So now I'm going to be unified It's not like God put me on the same street as this person So I guess I'll be unified We, we have to be unified Regardless of how far we're traveling to church Regardless of how needy we feel like we are Urgently, earnestly pursue it so, But how do we do this? We're, we're, we all are bringing baggage to the table. We all have maybe failed relationships in the past that are just rising to our minds right now. How could God call us to maintain this unity? It's the unity of the bride of Christ. Well, Paul's echoing his words here in Philippians 2, verse 12. Let's take a look at what he said there. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this. Work out your own salvation Mm -hmm. with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when God saves us from our sin, he invites us to have an active pursuit, an active role in the process of sanctification. Mm -hmm. We work out our own salvation knowing that it is only possible to do this by the grace that he gives us for good works. And one way that we see this play out is in our pursuit of the unity of the church. Mm-hmm. So we eagerly maintain the unity, even as we know the church is objectively unified in Christ, just as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works for our good and for his glory. So the fact that God has objectively unified in Christ just builds our faith to actually pursue unity. And the fact that he has promised to experientially unite us gives us hope Mm -hmm. that we will be able to maintain it by his grace. And so now we get practical. What does this look like? Unity is maybe different for you than it is for me. What does Paul say we have to have as we pursue it? Well, the first thing he points out is humility. He says, with all humility in this text. Now, in Paul's time, the attribute of humility was not a good thing. It was a majorly negative thing. If I said you were humble, you'd be like, ow, that hurt. Because it was, in the Roman times, it was looked upon as a subservient weakness, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a slave disposition, mm-hmm. where you were just, this person was your master. That was, that was the connotations involved. It was not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Today, we, we, we think of this in good terms, mostly. Someone says you're humble, it's, it's a compliment. And even in our corporate environments, um, servant leadership is kind of a thing right now. people are emphasizing it. But Paul was was countercultural here. He's bringing this to the surface not because it's already present but because it's so important for us to look at. So why? Why did Paul bring this up? In their culture, pride was everything. Grab for glory. Fight for your rights. Humility is the exact opposite of this. Paul is telling us that that if we're going to truly maintain the unity that we've been called to, that we've been given in Christ, we must decrease. In Christ must increase. Amen. We must have another's desire before our own mentality. Yes. We can't have an ambition for self and an ambition for us mm-hmm. at the same time. Is what he's telling us. The second attribute we see is gentleness, which in some translations will be rendered meekness, which I really like. Mm-hmm. To be meek means to not use the right that we possess for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Gentle meekness is evident if you think of a mother with her toddler, Right? Uh, My my wife has a toddler, and if he ever punches her, ooh, that makes my blood boil in a way that nothing else will. But meanness is evident when the child strikes the mother and she does not return the blood. She has the position of authority. She has the power in that moment. But when she returns grace for punishment, that is meanness. Uh, Meekness is evident when you have a right rebuke with somebody. They said something, they did something that needs to be corrected. But you think about, how can I say this in the most kind, loving way while we're That's meekness. You have a position. You need to say that. But how do you say it? See, humility and meekness have more to do with how we say something, how we think about our actions, than we actually do or say. There's perhaps nothing more destructive to unity than pride. And unity blossoms when those in positions of power use it for the good of others and not for their own gain. Pastors care for their flock and don't spiritually dominate their sheep for their own glory. Husbands put the interests of their family before their own. Parents discipline and and instruct their children, not just so their lives are easier, but so that their children will come to know God. So I have, a, I have an example of this that played out in my own life. I was a freshman in college, right after my first semester, and it had been a rocky semester for me, relationally, especially with my parents. I would be gone for days on end and not tell them where I was, and then I'd just show up and expect them to not have any problems with it. And they would, they would you know, tell me they had problems with it, and I'd be like, why? And it was this issue, that was rubbing point that had kind of played out and built on them throughout the semester. And I remember an apprehension sitting at my computer and looking at my grades for the first semester, waiting for them to display, they popped up. My mom was right here. <laughs> and I was just like, like my heart literally just sank. It felt like it was like down under the ground or something. The grades said that I was not only had I, had I failed so many classes that I, I did that job, it said, if you don't get your grades up by next semester, you're out of here. Mm-hmm. I was on academic probation. And I kind of just looked and I did one of these. (laughs) And one eye open sort of peering at my mom over my shoulder. I expected her to just be like, see, I told you so! You should have been home! You should have been, you know, just reeling into me righteously, right? I I was doing dumb stuff. But she was silent. She just slowly turned around. (laughs) Let me just like, you know, real nervous still, and she comes in, and she, she just, she doesn't have a gun in her hand, she has, she has, she has an envelope, and I'm like, okay, is this like a get out for 30 days, what is this, <laughs> no, she handed it to me, I opened it up, and I see it's her transcripts from college, and she said, look at the first semester of my, of my college, said, same thing happened, and I was just like, I was just blown away at that moment, my, my my heart was sailing. It was in the ground. Now it's in the sky. It was all—all all of the—the the fear that I had was replaced with love for my mom, and for my parents. And that rocky relationship that was developing was replaced with a blossoming, blossoming, unified relationship. Yeah. Yeah. You see, my mom. She. She had. She said, Thanks, mom. By the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. she could have punished me, and that would have been right for her to do so. And there were other times that she did. Right? Didn't always put out that way. But meekness, using positions of authority for the good of others, what does it lead to? You, right? This is why Paul's bringing this to the surface. This gentleness, this meekness is so important for us. So these two things we've looked at thus far, humility and meekness, are actions or postures that we take on as we seek to be in good relationships with one another, to be unified. The next two we're going to look at are actually reactions. The reactions to sin and the difficulties that we experience when in relationship. Why? Because maintaining unity is a group project. Mm-hmm. You can't do it by yourself. Uh-huh. And we know because of the realities of sin that when we do this, mm-hmm. we're going to experience each other's baggage. Mm-hmm. So in a relationship... I have something to kind of illustrate this. You have you have this, this initial honeymoon honeymoon period. Uh, I see this all the time because I teach high schoolers and they're always telling about their relationships. And you, you hear you hear them like, oh, oh, he's the best, he's just perfect, he's wonderful. And then a few weeks go by and sin is not a possibility, it's inevitable. And they come to me and they say, uh, he changed. He used to be so nice, but then he just got so selfish. And I just look at them like, no he really, really wasn't kind he really wasn't considerate he was pretending <laughs> <laughs> who you see now is who he really is yes. And you know what, we can have the same experience when we join church um, yeah. you know, we can like look around, see all these hands raised see all these smiles on people's faces see all these kind, oh can I hold the door for you moments and we're like, these people are awesome I love this church but then after a, t- a t- period of time it's only a matter of time that yeah. we then experience yeah, right. Yeah. Sometimes it will be subtle. Sometimes it will be overt. Sometimes it will just be in the back of our minds. Sometimes it will be devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we have to understand, guys, that this church is not perfect. Mm-hmm. I respect you guys. I do. Look up to you all. But you're not perfect. Mm-hmm. And we have to join with open eyes. I think that the Lord wants to speak to people today who have been kind of bouncing from church to church. You know, you've just... You've you've been at churches, had good experience, and then it gets uncomfortable. And you you just left. You just couldn't handle it. I believe God wants to to help you really experience the benefit of being unified in a way that far goes beyond that. See, we're going to sin against each other. We have to have a love that is not contingent upon what we currently feel about the church. This is similar to how Eagles fans like myself feel about our football team. It could, the Eagles could be four enough, have a perfect record to start the season. They lose a game, call into sports radio, and what do you hear? You hear, I'm giving up my season tickets! This is the worst team ever! I can't believe it! They don't even care that they won four games. It's, what have you done for me lately? That's not, right? And, and sadly, I have that mentality about too. <laughs> we have to fight that urge because it's the same idea here. What has the church done for me lately? How did I feel this Sunday? Did something that the pastor said offend me? I'm out. Right? And the phrasing of this, te- this verse doesn't say we may experience sin. Patience and forbearance, they're important and, and inevitable attributes that we are going to have to react with mm-hmm. as we forbear and are patient with encountering sin. And I believe that God wants to, to speak to you today if you feel you've never been committed to church. Perhaps you move from church to church, leaving when things get uncomfortable, and friends, God wants something better for you. God, God wants you to commit to a church. Maybe it's this church. Maybe it's the church that you've attended in the past. You can't be unified if you're not. It's not possible. I believe there's also a second group of people here today that God wants to speak to, and that's those who have been in a church for a long time. If you can't remember the last time that you needed to be patient with somebody in the church or forbear, or maybe the last time that someone brought a rebuke against you because of sin. You may not be unified to the degree that God wants you to be. You see, there's a, there's a sense where we need to know each other like family knows each other. Uh-huh. You know, we can, we can talk, tell some really good things about our family members, can't we? We can probably talk about their great attributes more than anything else. We can also talk about... The bad stuff, right? There's some stuff that you can say in front of everybody that make them very uncomfortable, right? Because they know you. And because you've been open and honest. And guess what? You're committed. Mm -hmm. You are in it. For the long haul, you've gotten to know each other, good and bad, and you're sticking around. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: That's what families are supposed to be. And I recognize there are some that haven't had that experience in family. So I'm not marginalized and I don't hear that. But you get the point. Mm -hmm. Unity is about... Getting to know each other to the point until we smell the stench mm-hmm. of our sin, and we say. <laughs> Unity is about getting close enough that we see that person's failing in the same way, and we're patient. Amen. Unity is about experiencing sin over and over and over again, and yet forbearing, and saying, like, "You know what? I'm not going to hold this against you. You're still my brother. You're still my sister in Christ." Yeah, guys. If that sounds foreign, if that sounds impossible to you this morning, the only way it's possible is if you've first been forbeard with yeah. yeah. If you first received patience, if you first mm-hmm. received humility mm-hmm. and meekness, believe God wants to speak to you. Salvation's about, I am a sinner. Uh-huh. The depths of my sin I don't even get. And every day I'm realizing that I'm failing over and over and over again. And I'm at the end. I'm at the end of what I can do. I'm at the end of where I could possibly hope to be. Yeah. And I cry out to you, God. Yeah. Is there someone out there? Yeah. Is there some way besides me working for my salvation for me to get past this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. God has provided a way. Amen. He's provided a way in Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus gave up the glory of God. He gave up the right-hand seat of the Father so that you could receive salvation. Amen. Jesus was in the position of authority. He could have judged you when he yeah. came the first time. But when yeah. he came, he came not to judge but to save, to seek and save the love. Jesus was patient. He was there when the waters were formed. Yeah. He was there when light was spoken into existence. Yeah. And Jesus was there when you were formed in your mother's womb. Yeah. He was there when you had your first sin. He yeah. was there when you had your first moment of temptation that you gave into. And Jesus was patient. Amen. He's patient with you to this day. If you are living, he's yeah. patient. Amen. Jesus forbear with you. Amen. Jesus done more than forbear. Amen. He Amen. has taken the wrath Mm-hmm. So receive that this morning. you haven't committed to Jesus, do so, so that you can be a part of this and unify together. Mm-hmm. Got to figure out where I'm supposed to be in my notes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Consider the example of Moses. One more example of this meekness and this forbearance played out. I was reading in my devotions the other day, a couple weeks ago, and it was one of those, they were just said, share this. So they are, I share this. So Numbers 12 recounts a story of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. It's like sort of a battle for power over Israel. Uh-huh. In Numbers, they're in the desert, they're in the wilderness, and they're wandering for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And have you ever considered like, how the Israelites stayed together as a nation in the wilderness? How did that happen? 40 years of just wandering around in circles while a whole generation dies crazy, right? How did did it happen? Did God do it? Yes, God did it. Through miraculous manna, right? Through uh, quail, serpents, sinkholes, and other amazing means. But often we forget Moses' leadership. Numbers 12 underscores this. Miriam and Aaron made this power place to take the leader position that God had given Moses. He was a prophet. He spoke to God, right? And he was given the special task to deliver God's word to his people. Hear what they say. This is verse 2 of Numbers 12. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, in that moment, you'd think, Moses would be like, get out of my way, right? Like, look, I, I just parted the sea for you, right? Like, I, I called down plagues. I got the staff. Where's your staff, right? <laughs> I got this staff, right? So, but, but we don't hear... Moses responds to them in that moment. What it says next, and this is where I felt like it was for you today, is now the man, Moses, was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Yeah. So why did the scriptures say he was meek? The story continues as Moses does not speak for himself. He does not defend himself, but God does. Mm-hmm. He strikes Miriam with leprosy. Mm-hmm. Aaron turns towards Moses and just says, please, leave her. And I expect Moses just to say, Serves you right. You made the power play. You want to be the genie. You get everything that goes with it, right?
1: (laughs) But instead, here's what
0: we hear him say These are the words he utters Oh God, please heal her. Please. There's just a a, a real genuineness to that. He could have punished, he could have called down fire, right? He could have said, Swallow her around. But instead, he extends mercy. And in humility and meekness, he maintained the unity of God's people, even as God had promised for a remnant to be preserved, right? There's that two-handed. God does it, and we act alongside. Brothers and sisters, how is God using you to unify this church? This one right here, the one that you attend regularly. What fruit are you not bearing? Humility, patience, forbearance, meekness, that you need to think about producing more. What's the motivation for your relationship in the church? Your reputation or their good? How do you use positions of authority that you've been given? How do you respond when sinned against? Let's maintain the union have in given and humility. Now, we're in the middle of an Explore series for those who are joining our church, and our Explore material addresses two applications that this unified life focuses on, and that's in the church. We're unified in the local church, and we've seen that played out in this text. Um, ...through patience and through forbearance and humility and meekness. But it's also in the home. As Ephesians goes on later, Paul outlines how we're to unify in our households. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. But the specific roles that we demonstrate as we mutually submit to each other are outlined in the following verses. Children obey their parents... Parents lead their children. There's a role. Obey and lead. The children in an understanding way so as not to exasperate them. Wives submit to their husbands as their leader and head of their family. Husbands sacrificially, lovingly lead their wives for their mutual benefit. For a husband, his good pleasure has become his wife's good pleasure. Leadership isn't a personally beneficial thing. It's about sacrificing and the good of the other becoming your good. It's an opportunity to sacrifice. Children are to obey their parents and submit to them. Now, I recognize submission is a really challenging topic. Some of you may just turn off and I'm saying to you when you heard that word. It's because our feministic culture tells us that you can't be equal in value and, and different in roles. They say there can't be any difference between men and women for us to be um, not equal. Brothers and sisters, this is a lie. Why do I say that? Well, the Bible says it. Submission has never been a subordinate role, according to the Bible. We're going to take time later in the series to really like unpack that proof from the text. But for now, let's just consider Christ and the Father, Mm -hmm. His relationship, Jesus with His Father. You know the story of of the night before He was crucified. When He was on His knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed to the Father, "If it's possible, take this cup." Right. Mm -hmm. What was the response of the Father? Silence. Mm -hmm. No response. In that moment, Jesus could have said, how dare you not respond to my prayer request? I am God just as much as you are God. Mm -hmm. We are equal. Mm -hmm. But they have different roles. Mm -hmm. The Father wills, the Son does. Mm -hmm. Instead of submitting to his Father, he could have refused. Yes. But he submitted willfully mm-hmm. and lovingly and joyfully in that yeah. moment. Tears were shed yeah. as he experienced the agony, but it was not scorn of the Father that caused him to cry. Mm-hmm. He went forward that, that next day and <laughs> died. Does that make him subordinate and less worthy than the Father? No. no. The Bible is clear that the roles of Christ and Father are different. The Father weeps; The Son does. But their worth is equal. They are equally God, and as such, both deserving of worship. And similarly, we believe, here at Risen Hope, that the roles outlined in Ephesians 5 indicate that men and women are equal in value. Mm-hmm. They're just different in function. Heaven help them. Beautiful roles instituted by God before in creation. Excuse me. So why are divorce statistics so incredibly depressing? Why are so many homes broken and in a constant state of chaos? Why do so many children not know a father's love? One of the primary reasons is because the order that God put in place to create unity in the home has been thrown out and replaced. No more roles, no more unity. Where God is clear and we refuse, rivalry and chaos are always going to follow. Behind. We have to have a high view of marriage here. And we have to have a high view of the roles that God instituted into it. Because of this, marriage is to be preserved with great resolve. And while divorce is spoken of in the scriptures and allowed in extremely limited scenarios, the unity of marriage is to be held of paramount importance to the church. And this is why Paul takes time to speak about this category right after he says maintain the unity. Ephesians 5 comes right after our text, right? Now, Separately, in our explore here, when, when conflicts inevitably arise between members, outside of our houses but in our churches, the Bible commands and Risen Hope believes that God calls the local church to settle disputes internally. There's maybe nothing more compromising to the testimony of the church than to have our disputes played out in courtrooms. This is why First Corinthians 6 says what it does. Here Paul's rebuking the church of Corinth for taking their disputes to world courtrooms instead of the local church. It says, if, you have, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church, I say this to shame. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to the law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. So this is talking about disputes in our church. Now, clearly, there are criminal cases, right, where the law has has effect and should be used in the case of murder and rape and molestation. Right? We're talking about our disputes within our church. Not set, We're not supposed to use the, the courtrooms to settle our disputes. As a church, we're so committed to being unified, we ask each of our members to make the same commitment by signing a membership agreement that contains an expressed commitment to conciliation. If The, su- the supporting verses for this are Matthew five eighteen and Galatians 6. And I'm going to read this for you. This is the sort of process we go about when we have disagreements. Number one, when Christians are involved in a conflict that's too serious to overlook, the first thing they should do is meet together privately in a person try to resolve their differences. So just meet together and talk about it, right, before we take other avenues. The second thing they should do is, if this effort is unsuccessful, they should ask one or more other Christians to meet with them to seek reconciliation and a voluntary settlement to their differences. And then three, if they cannot arrive at a voluntary settlement, they should ask one or more other Christians to hear both sides of the matter and render a biblically-based decision that both sides are obligated to accept. Now, by making these commitments, we're all promising that we will never violate Scripture by bringing a lawsuit against one another for a disagreement that arises because of our relationships in the church. So, God calls us to maintain this unity in the bond of peace that He has given the church, and those procedures I just said are just the pastoral team's humble efforts to help aid in that process and keep us from taking our disputes out of the hands of the local church. Any one of the areas that I've talked about this far could be marriages, in your family, could be just having jumped from church to church, could be just not being unified and transparent enough to the degree that you feel like you should be. All those can be crushing burdens. We need to see that this passage has great comfort. Let's look at our third one. The comfort you. Verse one. Where does this start? Therefore, I, therefore. Anytime you see therefore, there should be an arrow in your mind pointing backwards. What just happened that he's saying therefore about? The entire passage that we just read, all those character qualities humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance all of them are unattainable qualities without the grace of God. And all of them are contingent upon what Paul has written up to chapter 4 of Ephesians. How can we aim to be humble when we are so often controlled by pride? Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. How can we hope to be humble? Because we've been already given the immeasurable riches of heaven. How can we hope to be meek? Because We've already been given an inheritance in Christ.
1: It's been outlined, right?
0: We don't need to grab for glory because we've been been given the glory of God. Therefore, therefore we can hope to become humble. Because God chose us, even in our weakness... Even when we didn't have our acts together, he chose to have his way with us. How can we hope to use our positions of power for others' benefit and not selfishly? Not by looking into our own hearts, but by looking at Ephesians 2 where it says, "And you were dead in the trespasses of your sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, we did not have our acts together. We were not born perfect. We were born dead. We didn't have it. We didn't understand what to do. We didn't know how to be humble. We didn't know how to be patient. We didn't know how to forbear. Yet God, in the midst of our wrath, In the midst of our impatience, in the midst of our grabs for glory, he saved us. He gave us grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive, how? Together in Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised up with him. We raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yeah. How can we have hope this morning? Because the work has already been done. Amen. We have been made alive, brothers and sisters, in Christ. Amen. we didn't have it together and like Dustin Cantrell said we had a head full of rocks and a heart made of stone but Spirit you made me see and we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it we were sealed we're filled you're empowered this morning for unity you are filled with this Spirit that on the day you were saved sealed you for eternity eternally secure in the grip of this almighty God Yeah. God raised us from death to life. Why? So that no one may boast. Mm-hmm. And so that we can grow in humility and meekness. Mm-hmm. How can we hope to be patient when we flip out on each other?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How can we hope to be forbearing when that person just keeps bringing up that issue? Yes. How? For he himself is our peace. Yeah. Who has made us both one. Mm-hmm. and has broken down in his flesh the divine wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create himself, in himself one new man of place in the mm-hmm. How can we be reconciled when some of us come from worlds apart? Mm-hmm. Racially divided. Experientially. Couldn't be different. Mm-hmm. He's broken down. Amen. We haven't done and as we maintain the unity that we've been given, mm-hmm. as we steward the unity, we are filled with faith. Because mm-hmm. the most polarizing things that could happen have happened have mm-hmm. happened. And yet the most powerful unifying force that could have spoken into that has spoken. Amen. We can hope to be patient and forbearing because our God's broken down these barriers he is creating himself one new man and is working in us the patience necessary for us to live out life together. Let's freshly resolve together to be unified. Our unifying Savior, get this, this is crazy. Our unifying Savior had that position of honor and gave it up to his Father. He was our judge, and yet he came not to save but to judge. He saw the depths of our sins before we lived, yet he gave us breath. He bore every lash in his beating, every curse on his walk, every nail on the cross, knowing the sin that we would still have this morning, and all of this that we might be one, even as he and the Father are one. As he says in John 17, he breathed his lats so that we could live as one. He is patient and forbearing in a way that we cannot fathom and brothers and sisters all of those actions are given to you Amen. through that grand imputation the switch of records where Christ's record becomes our record Amen. all of those acts that we just laid out are your acts Amen. that's horrible mm-hmm. how could I dude that's, I've been so sinful
1: uh-huh. that's just wrong
0: that someone would look at me as someone that gave up the glory of heaven mm. yet yeah, it's true Amen. he is patient he is forbearing. He is humble. He is naked. Now you are. Amen. Brothers and sisters, these actions are counted to your record. All the power plagues you have made, placed by weakness. All of your actions, aimed at self, replaced with humility. Amen. All of your sinful anger, tearing apart your home, replaced with forbearance. Yes. Let us grow in union together. Because our God has free us from condemnation. God does not want you to walk away if you've trusted in Christ with condemnation in your mind. Amen. He wants you to have a sense of a new life right. together. Yeah. A new resolve to say, I'm going to be open with people. Yeah. I'm going to let people in. I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm perfect Amen. and leave when the walls fall down. I'm just going to say, This is who I am. Please love me. And as that <laughs> next person does the same thing. You <laughs> So let's resolve together and let me pray to this God that we would have the unity this passage talks about. God, we want to be unified relationally like you've rejected and unified us. Holy Father, we pray that your plan to unite all people in your church would be seen in part of present hope. Christ, we thank you for the union that we experience in you that frees us from the guilt that our disharmony often creates. Spirit, we pray that you would squash our pride and selfish ambition mm-hmm. and through any means necessary, cool our anger and self righteousness. Mm-hmm. Grow our love for one another. Yeah. Trying God, please mature your church mm-hmm. so that we might be an appropriate testimony of how great and united you are. This is only possible because of your faithfulness to us and that you promised to make us united. Mm-hmm. Help our marriages, God.
1: Help husbands to live like Christ
0: in leading their homes. Amen. Help wives to live like Christ in submission to the Father. Help children to obey their parents and parents to <coughs> testify of the grace of God. Unite this church Amen. as the bride that loves you. Amen. Help us to be humble, meek, and patient, forbearing as we earnestly seek to maintain you, the your precious church. Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: the unity we've been given. That unity is rooted and built upon who God is and what he has secured for us Mm -hmm. in his Son. The one true God, triune God, one God, three persons, one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, through the act of redemption giving us this one faith, one baptism and one body. Mm -hmm. And it is only because Jesus Christ humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, that we are able to be humble and meek and walk out the reality of humility and weakness. It is only because he doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities that we can bear with one another in love. And the assumption there is that there is stuff that has to be bear with. And now we can be a family, a family that when we smell the stench of sin... We stay, because Christ smelled it all, and he stayed. Just a quick reminder, uh, there's a group, uh, Global Initiatives group prayer immediately following the service in the nursing mother's room about 15 or 20 minutes afterwards. And then uh, the guest reception will be available upstairs. Uh, if you're first time here or if you've been visiting for a couple weeks, simply go up the stairs, turn right, and turn left and then someone from the leadership team will be there to answer a couple questions about the church, uh, to answer questions you might have about the church and to tell you more about Risen Hope. Now let me close with this benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, yeah. to him be glory Amen. in the church and in Christ Jesus Amen. throughout all generations, forever and ever. Thank